Hello, and welcome to Autism Actually Speaks. I'm Drew, your Actually Autistic host, and today I'm going to be explaining some essential things to know about autism in adults. For me, one of the hardest things about being autistic is how I'm constantly being misunderstood. Autistic people put so much energy into meeting other people's needs, and every action that we perform is motivated by how it's going to make the people around us feel. And this is what we've had to do our whole lives. Autistic people are branded as rude, unfeeling, and unempathetic, and we spend every day trying our hardest to prove that wrong. We overcompensate with constantly trying to please other people, but we're immediately disregarded because of how we offer support and affection in different ways from other people without autism. The autistic community spends so much of their time trying to make other people feel special and loved just to be continuously characterized as unkind. And no matter how hard we try, the world refuses to validate acts of autistic love and kindness, and it's just exhausting. So before I jump into more niche topics regarding autism in my future episodes, I thought that I would first provide a baseline of knowledge about autism in adults to tackle some really basic misunderstandings that people have about autism spectrum disorder. And all of the information in this episode is pretty fundamental facts and characteristics about autism that I think everyone should know to make the lives of people with autism easier. So to try and organize the content that I'm going to talk about in this episode, I went ahead and tried to split all of the topics that I wanted to cover into like different sections. So the first section, I just want to explain what autism is, just generally, broadly, theoretically, what is autism? And I guess the answer to that is that autism is not a single condition, but rather a wide spectrum of quote-unquote disorders. And autism spectrum disorder, abbreviated as ASD, is a condition that affects the way people behave, socialize, and communicate with others. And it's treated as a condition with a wide-ranging spectrum of symptoms, characteristics, and severity. And I do just want to note off the bat that what was once separately diagnosed as Asperger's syndrome is now diagnosed within the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. There is a long history around why Asperger's syndrome as a medical clinical diagnosis is problematic, But for now, just take my word for it. If y'all would like me to deep dive into the historical origins of Asperger's syndrome and its relationship with autism, please let me know because I would love to put that together. But for the sake of this episode, just take it at face value that Asperger's syndrome as a diagnosis is problematic and it's now diagnosed as autism spectrum disorder. So now that we just have the basic general definition of autism laid down, I thought I'd go ahead and explain and list some examples of signs of autism in adults. This is by no way going to list all of the characteristics of autism in adults. I just wanted to pick the ones that I thought were probably the most prevalent generally in autistic adults and ones that I especially relate to. So the first one I have is finding it hard to understand what others are thinking or feeling. And this is not to say that autistic people don't feel empathy. I will put it very plainly, we do. Autistic people are capable and do feel empathy. And the reason why this has kind of been misconstrued is because Autistic people may take more time to pick up on someone's emotions and recognize what someone is feeling, but once we take the time and fully understand someone's situation and their emotions, then we are completely able to empathize with them and fully support them and give them the care that they need. But the reason why people have taken stuff out of context and said that autistic people don't feel empathy is because it takes us a little bit longer to recognize emotions and facial expressions in order to express empathy. 
So another sign of autism in adults is getting very anxious about social situation. And with this one, autism spectrum disorder and social anxiety disorder really have a lot of overlapping overlapping symptoms and characteristics. Autistic people may dread social interaction due to their lack of understanding of social cues and their difficulty with maintaining eye contact. And I read this quote somewhere. I'm not really sure where I read it, but it just has really stuck with me and I think describes I describes this characteristic of autism really well. And the quote is that all the little things that holistic people do unconsciously, autistic people do manually. And holistic people is just the term for people that don't have autism. And this quote just really highlights how just being in a social situation is a huge task for autistic people. And it requires a lot of focus. They're all the little things that regular people would not even think about, you know, oh, am I looking at someone the right way? Can they see the emotions raging through me in my eyes? You know, all those little things. Oh, how do my clothes feel on my skin? It's how is the temperature in this room? Those are all things that holistic people just filter out and they're able to keep their attention very keenly focused on conversations that are going on and people that are there. But for autistic people, all of the just stimulus that's coming from everywhere and all the things that we're thinking about and just really obsessing over can cause a lot of people on the autism spectrum to really dread social interaction just because of how much it overloads their brain and their capacity to think about everything going on at once. Another sign of autism in adults is seeming blunt, rude, or not interested in others without meaning to. And for me, this is definitely indicative of something that I struggle with. I get told all the time by people that eventually become my friends that when they first met me or when they first saw me that they were extremely intimidated. And I never understood why until I got diagnosed with autism and read this characteristic and realized, oh, well, that's probably why. And it's because individuals on the autism spectrum often have extreme difficulty, like I said, recognizing and understanding social cues and therefore don't instinctively learn to adjust their behavior to suit different social contexts. And for me personally, this results in me not getting along with children. I don't have the ability to filter what I'm saying, change the tone of my voice, speak in a different way to meet children where they're at. And instead, I just talk to them like I would anyone else around me. And for that, I can really seem intimidating and scary to children. And they normally don't really like me, which I'm honestly fine with. And Another sign, I feel like I'm just listing these off, but, you know, I really do want to cover a lot of ground in this episode, so I guess just bear with me. Another sign of autism in adults that I think is important is having the same routine every day and getting very anxious if it changes. And I I think this can be a, a little bit confusing just because this is not the same as obsessive compulsive disorder. We don't have to have a very specific routine in which we do everything in a very specific order, everything at a specific amount of times, everything at a certain time of day. Like it's it doesn't have to be an extremely regimented routine that we follow like robots every day, but it is a general order of events that we like. Like for me, when I get up, the first thing I like to do is While I'm still in my pajamas, I like to go downstairs and I like to get myself a cup of coffee. Sometimes I make different coffee. Sometimes I use a coffee maker. Sometimes I use my mocha pot. Some days when it's really hot outside, I'll just have iced coffee for breakfast. So the routine isn't necessarily that I have to have this one specific type of coffee and if I don't have it, then it'll go crazy. But it's just the idea of being able to wake up and just have a beverage that I can enjoy to warm up you know, my morning routine. And so on mornings where, you know, maybe I slept through my alarm or I forgot to set an alarm and I woke up really late, 
and I don't have time to really, uh, I guess, just sit down and take my morning slow. And instead, I have to rush through everything. And maybe I don't get the 15 minutes to drink my coffee that I normally have. That can really be upsetting to my entire day. That can affect my mood throughout the entire day. It's just autistic people, when their routine is interrupted and when it, you know, when a rut gets put in their routine, it's not something that we can just easily shake off. It's we have expectations for, you know, our mornings and nights especially to go a certain way. And if they don't go that way, then we can get a lot of anxiety out of it. And it's something that can just stay with us throughout the entire day. Another thing that autistic people struggle with is just in in general struggling with newness, struggling with new things, new textures, new smells, things like that. Struggling with wearing new clothes or eating new foods and just general the general unpredictable unpredictability that comes with experiencing something new. And this is really prevalent for me. I do theater in my free time and on the most recent production I was in, they I was playing a male character. And so they had me wearing men's jeans. And I had never tried on men's jeans before. And it was a very uncomfortable sensory experience on the day in which we had to meet with wardrobe to try on all our costumes to see if they fit. They had me try on like five different men's jeans. Each of them fit a different awkward way. Each of the denim felt different. And I just remember that being a completely overwhelming experience for me. It was in the middle of like a random school day during the spring semester. And I just remember that instead of going to lunch, I just found a quiet room on campus and just cried and had a little meltdown about it. And it's not that I hated the clothes or I thought that I looked bad. It was just it was so much new stimulus coming from the unfamiliar feeling of wearing men's jeans, jeans that weren't made for me, that really overwhelmed my body and caused a lot of anxiety and caused a lot of overstimulation just because I had never worn men's jeans. And so I had no expectation for how that was going to feel. And my reaction to wearing those was extremely unpredictable. And so just, I guess, a takeaway by and large, if autistic people are going to try something new, it's best to do it in very small, digestible chunks. That day in which I had to try on, you know, pairs of jeans over and over and over again for like close to an hour, that was something that I was not fully expecting to do. And it wasn't something that was done in a way that was accommodating to someone with autism. I could have done better and spoken up for myself, but I just honestly wanted to get it over with. But generally, if autistic people are going to try something new, it takes a lot of confidence and it takes a lot of self-awareness in how much they're able to endure. And I've I've touched on this actually quite a bit already in this episode, but I do just want to say it one more time. Another really big symptom of just autism in general, not necessarily in adults. Actually, most of these are pretty big just for autism in general, but there are other symptoms that are more specialized and like limited for children. But this one especially is just a really broad thing that almost all autistic people uh, experience. And that's not understanding social rules. For many people with autism, engaging in a social interaction is like playing a game without knowing the rules. And a lot of autistic people, me included, feel as if everyone around them was given a detailed instruction manual on how to behave in social situations except for them. And like I said earlier, this can be very anxiety-inducing for autistic people. They feel like even before they start having a conversation or being social, they're already behind and they're already losing. And this can be extremely overwhelming. And it takes a lot of courage for someone with autism to carry a full-on conversation, especially if it's something where eye contact is expected and masking is required and stuff like that can be really hard. Another thing is a lot of autistic people are able to notice 
small details, patterns, smells, and or sounds that other people usually don't notice or disregard. And that's because some autistic people have heightened senses and sensitivities to their surroundings. For me, I have never really thought that this applied to me until I moved in to my college apartment and I moved in with my partner. And my partner kept noticing how many things I would pick up on that he didn't. And the one big thing for me is my sense of smell. It something like I like gas or someone cooking food or smoke can be really overwhelming to me and can be extremely just strong and like very present in like just me smelling something. Whereas someone around me can be like, oh, you know, I, I barely smell it. It's just a hint and, you know, I'm fine. I can just ignore it. But especially for me, just my sense of smell is really I, it's, I don't know. I just have a really strong sense of smell that I never, I guess, clocked until I lived with other people who were able to call me out on it and be like, wow, Drew, like, I, this doesn't bother me at all. I barely smell it. How are you, you know, getting so bothered by this? How is it so strong to you? And it's because of heightened senses and sensitivities that I have to my surroundings because of my autism. And I feel like this one is this this next uh, sign of autism is one that people are starting to know more about and people are starting to accept more. And that is how autistic people have very keen interests in certain subjects or activities. And these are called special interests. And this term special interest is specifically reserved to describe autistic hyperfixations. The term hyperfixation can be used by anyone. If you're just really interested in tunnel visioned on something, you can say you're hyperfixated on it. But the term, oh, you know, I really like, I don't know, I really like sharks. And if you're autistic, then you would say you have a special interest in sharks. And special interests are things that you can have for a limited period of time, or they're things that can span your entire life. Probably the biggest special interest of mine is cats. Ever since I have had a sentient thought, I have loved cats. I, No matter what the cat is, what its temperament is like, I just love cats. I have two cats. Growing up, my family had a couple of cats, and they're just something that constantly bring me joy. And as time goes on, the amount of joy and happiness that they bring to me never wavers. And I constantly have really strong, affectionate feelings for cats that just doesn't go away and it never wanes. And so for me, that is my biggest special interest is cats. And for children, special interests can be different. They can be... um like there's this huge stereotype of like autistic boys being obsessed with like trains, cars and planes. And you know, those types of things, special interests that you have in your childhood can span throughout the, the throughout the rest of your life. But special interests can also change as you mature. And they can special interests can kind of follow your life in a way. Um, a huge special interest of mine right now is autism. I got diagnosed with it relatively recently, and it's something that has been on my mind a lot and has been a huge source of, I guess, just opportunities for research for me. And so right now, this is a huge special interest. But years from now, when I am more comfortable with my autism diagnosis and I know more about the disorder in, in general, maybe the special interest maybe won't be so much. And that can be, you know, autism can be a special interest that maybe stayed in my 20s. Who knows? This could be something that lasts the rest of my life. But there's not really a way of knowing for sure. Special interests can last months, they can last years, they can last decades, but really the defining factor of special interests is that it's something that an autistic person is very hyper fixated on. It's something that they love to talk about and it brings them happiness and joy to talk about it. And it's a really huge passion for them. A lot of times, if a, if a special interest is something like physical or material, autistic people will get 
things like that. So if I really like cats, then I have shirts with cats on them. I have jewelry with cats on them. I have actual cats. My desktop on my laptop is a picture of cats. Everything is cats. I said cats a lot. But anyway, those are special interests. And I guess the last sign of autism that I'm going to touch on, just for sake of time, like I could probably list these infinitely, but just to make sure and keep this episode relatively digestible, I have one more to talk about. And that is how autistic people like to plan things very carefully before doing them. I am a huge planner. I love to plan. I, I have a physical planner that I write my to-do lists every day. I write all of my appointments, all of my, uh, like if I'm hanging out with my friends, I'll write it on my calendar. And I make sure that if I am going to go out and be social or if I have something specific I want to do in a day, that I have it planned out. I know around what time I'm going to do a certain thing. I know where I have to go. If it's going to be a social event, I know who's going to be there. And this just goes hand in hand with the struggles that autistic people have with newness and the need for us to have daily routines. Autistic people, myself included, really thrive under predictable environments. And obviously, there are things that get in the way of predictability. If I wake up and my plan was to go to the zoo and I wake up and it's storming and thundering outside, obviously I'm not going to go to the zoo. But if something like that happens where, you know, all the things I had planned suddenly can't happen for whatever reason, that can be really hard. That unpredictability that comes with plans being canceled or something being moved or people running late can really have an extremely intense effect on autistic people that holistic people just can't really wrap their heads around. It's not something that we're doing to be dramatic, and it's not that we're, you know, being like a diva about these things. It is just, it's just a part of autism and how we prefer predictable environments with, you know, these set routines and expectations about how our day is going to go that really lets us thrive and reach our full potential. And, you know, when life happens and things get in the way, autistic people can take a lot longer to, to bounce back and, and recover and adapt versus people without autism who can just immediately go, oh, well, well, at least, you know, I have time in the day to do something else and immediately move on. Whereas autistic people may take time to process this further. They may have a meltdown and need, you know, maybe an hour or a couple hours to just recharge and uh, stim and get out that uh, charged emotions and charged overstimulation. And then once we have fully recovered and processed the unpredictability that has happened, then we're able to recuperate and pull ourselves together and be like, okay, now I can conquer this day. So whereas someone without autism may take I'm maybe 10, 30 seconds to recover from plans not following through, someone with autism may take significantly longer, maybe 30 minutes or multiple hours to be able to move past plans being changed. All right, so the next section that I want to talk about is just to try and visualize and explain the autism spectrum. A huge misconception about autism is in regard to it being a spectrum. Like the disorder itself is called autism. Oh my God, I can't speak. The disorder itself is called autism spectrum disorder. Spectrum is in the name. The idea of a spectrum is very important to explaining autism itself. But when people picture the autism spectrum, they imagine almost a quantitative linear spectrum with one end representing people with zero autism and the other end representing people with like the maximum amount of autism. And this is a very incorrect interpretation of the autism spectrum. And this is 
this incorrect interpretation is what has largely popularized the quote and the saying that, you know, everyone's a little autistic. And this is basically saying that no matter how many autistic traits you possess, even if you don't have any, everyone falls on the spectrum somewhere, but this could not be farther from reality. I will just speak very plainly. If you are not autistic, then you are not on the autism spectrum. And you cannot be mildly autistic, and you also can't be super autistic. Autism is, in this regard, very black and white. You are either autistic or you're not. And there's no in-between or gray area within autism. Again, you are either autistic or you're not. It's really that simple. And jumping off of this, trying to correct this incorrect thought about the autism spectrum is that the autism spectrum is actually contained within the autistic community. So you're only on the autism spectrum if you actually have autism. And even within autistic groups, the spectrum still isn't linear. And this is another thing that a lot of people get wrong. Even within people who have have autism, it's not this straight line where, you know, you get quantitatively ranked on how autistic you are. That is not the autism spectrum. Even contained within autistic people, the spectrum is not, you know, this, this quantitative linear line with one end representing people with high-functioning autism and the other end representing people with low-functioning or severe autism. This is very wrong. And first off, the language of, quote, high-functioning, low-functioning, and severe is very hurtful to autistic people. And terms like that misrepresent the true nature of the disorder. I could honestly digress and talk about this for hours, so I'll make sure to come back in a later episode to discuss clinical language, labels, and vocabulary associated with autism, and I guess just try to elaborate on which terms are rooted in misunderstanding about autism and which terms are largely supported by the autis- autistic community in being, you know, the most rep- representative of the true Uh, I guess, essence of autism. So moving on, the actual spectrum that autism spectrum disorder refers to is a spectrum of the various symptoms and traits associated with autism. And every autistic person has their own unique placement on the autism spectrum. This is an instance in which it would really be nice for this not to be a podcast and it'd be like a video or something because Honestly, showing a picture would probably explain it a lot better, but I'm going to try to verbally explain what the autism spectrum looks like visually. So I like to think of it as a wheel or a pie chart cut into like different slices. And each slice of like the spoked wheel or the pie chart is a certain autistic trait that someone may have. And the bigger the slice, the more impairing that symptom is to that person. And each slice of the autism spectrum, each slice of the pie chart, is sized accordingly based on how severely someone displays autistic traits. And the severity of each trait or the size of, you know, these pie slices in your autism spectrum can change on a day-to-day basis. So these, you know, these symptoms of autism can vary from person to person on the autism spectrum, but they can also vary within one autistic person from day to day. So just an example of that, I guess a personal example is I'm usually pretty okay at social skills and communication. So I'd say that my pie slice or my little, you know, slice on my uh, on my individual uh, autism spectrum for that trait, for the traits of, you know, social skills and communication would normally be pretty small. My pie slice would be pretty small on my personal autism spectrum for that specific trait. 
But on some days, I find that my social skills aren't really social skilling. And I might find myself really impaired by my social deficits. So on those days, even though I'd say they are less common, my pie slice for social skills and communication would be bigger because I need more support for those for uh, that's that trait on that day. And it my inability to have social, uh, you know, have social adequacy and communication causes me more impairment. So before I move on, this is probably the most complicated thing I'm going to talk about in this episode. I just want to reiterate the takeaways about the autism spectrum. So one, holistic people are excluded from the autism spectrum. If you don't have autism, then you are not on the autism spectrum. Two, autistic people will always have a placement on their own individual autism spectrum, and they will always have some sort of combination of all of the symptoms associated with ASD because these traits serve as the basis for the diagnostic criteria for autism itself. And three, the severity or intensity of each trait varies across different autistic people, and they usually vary within each individual autistic person from day to day. I know that was a lot, and I really hope I explained that well, but if you would like to know more about the specific traits associated with autism or the official diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder, I would be happy to talk about that in a different episode. And if you need help visualizing the autism spectrum and trying to, I guess, just get a mental image of what it looks like, if you go on my Instagram, the cover art for this episode, or it actually might just show up on Spotify too. I'm not really sure how that works. But the cover art for this episode is an abstract version of what an autism spectrum actually looks like. So I hope that that is helpful. And before I move on, I do just want to acknowledge that some of the language I used to explain the autism spectrum in this section is problematic. And I don't like using this language, but the medical field and clinicians that evaluate and study autism have yet to create better language that better characterizes the essence of autism. So saying that someday I may have great skills in this area and some days I may have a deficit can be problematic. Recently, there has been backlash over the use of the terms of deficits to describe various autistic traits. And I agree that this is something that needs to be worked on and people need to come together to create a more inclusive language to describe the various ongoings of autism spectrum disorder. And so I do just want to apologize. I know that I did use deficit in this section, and that's not necessarily something that I think is a correct use of, I guess, that term. I don't think autistic people have deficits in anything. Autistic people are not broken. We are not lacking in anything. We just express ourselves in different ways. So the use of the term deficit was definitely a misstep on my part, and I apologize. Okay, so moving on to section three, which is where I want to talk about neurodivergency. So neurodivergence is the term for people whose brains function differently in one or more ways than is considered standard or typical. And there are many ways many different ways that neurodivergence manifests, ranging from very mild ways that most people would never even notice to more obvious ways that lead to a person behaving differently than is standard in our very neurotypical society. And one way that I like to understand and I like to explain neurodiversity is to think of it in terms of human operating systems. So just bear with me on this analogy. So just because a laptop or a personal computer is running on Google Chrome instead of Windows doesn't mean that it's broken. One is not necessarily better than the other, 
and trying to hierarchize them is like comparing apples and oranges. They're just different. It's not necessarily that one is better and the other is worse. They're just different. They can't really be compared. So with this analogy, neurotypical brains is one operating system and neurodivergent brains is another. And both are equally capable of running the human body successfully. So to further explain neurodiversity, neurodivergence is an umbrella term that encompasses dozens of disorders, impairments, and disabilities. And while the terms neurodivergent and neurotypical are very helpful in differentiating those broad social groups, a more specific term can be used to separate autistic people from non-autistic people. And I've mentioned this term before, but just to reiterate it, that term is allistic. Someone who doesn't have autism is allistic, but they still may be neurodivergent, like having ADHD or epilepsy. So using this term allistic to refer to non-autistic people is preferred over generalizing the use of the word neurotypical because it keeps neurodivergent people in the conversation. It is important to remember the, the different groups within neurodivergency and not to conflate autism with it. We want to make sure that every every qualifying disorder, impairment, or disability that makes you neurodivergent is included within neurodivergent conversations. And it would be extremely hurtful and it would be very misleading to conflate neurodivergency with autism because that leaves so many people out of the conversation. And so to just end this section off, I thought I'd just provide a very brief and not exhaustive list of disorders or disabilities or impairments that fall under the umbrella of neurodivergency. So just to list off, not all of them, just some that I thought maybe were the most common are obviously autism, ADHD, dyslexia, Tourette syndrome, Down syndrome, epilepsy, and chronic mental illnesses like obsessive compulsive disorder, borderline personality disorder, general anxiety disorder, and major depressive disorder. And if you have one of these things, you are considered neurodivergent. You can have multiple of these things, like me. I have autism, but I also have general anxiety disorder. So I have two of the criteria for me to be neurodivergent. And it's important to remember that neurodivergency is very diverse and there are tons of different disorders, disabilities, and impairments, each with very unique characteristics that may qualify someone to be neurodivergent. All right, now it is time for our fourth and last section in which I've titled Living with Autism. So I think I've taken enough time to kind of give a very fundamental, but I think effective baseline of autism theoretically. But now I want to apply autism to day-to-day -day life and what actually happens as an autistic person trying to navigate the world with an autistic brain. So this is a podcast. I have conversations on a podcast. I am speaking technically with myself on this podcast, but I would conflate this to be a conversation. And so with that, the first thing I want to touch on within this section of living with autism is to just try and clarify and describe autistic conversations. So very generally, conversations can be broken down into two types. There are anecdotal conversations where you interject your personal experiences into a communication and there are question-based conversations where you're asking and answering questions back and forth. So say I went to a David Bowie concert last night. An anecdotal conversation I would have with someone about that concert may go like this. So I would say, 
hey, I just went to a David Bowie concert last night. And the other person would answer, oh my God, really? I went and saw his concert this past year and the venue was great. Did he have that venue with you? Yeah. And in my experience, the the crowd was completely filled and it was sold out. Was it like that for you? No, actually it was a really weirdly timed show. So not a lot of people were there, but he did do this really cool encore performance. Did he do that for you? Yeah. And my personal experience, his encore was a different song because it was on a different album, but that's still really cool. So throughout conversations in this anecdotal type, you're constantly while still having questions and answering them to drive along the conversation, the main backbone in the conversation comes from injecting your personal experiences into the questions and the answers and making sure that the driving force of the conversation is inserting yourself and your own personal experiences and stories into the conversation. But a conversation still about that same David Bowie uh, concert but a more question-based conversation may go like this. Hey, I went to a David Bowie concert last night. Oh, really? How was it? It was great. Did they do an encore performance? No, they didn't. It was raining, so the concert ended early. Oh, did you get an Uber home? Yes, I did. Was there a lot of traffic? No, there wasn't. Is, this conversation is a lot more formulaic where the person asking the questions isn't taking any time to insert their own experiences into it. They're instead just listening to the feedback from the other person and taking their feedback to form another question to ask. So with these examples of anecdotal and question-based conversations, I was getting to the point where I was trying to, I guess, make the point of that autistic people tend to gravitate more towards anecdotal communication, whereas allistic people typically default to question-based conversation. So the first example that I provided is a really indicative snapshot of an autistic conversation, whereas the second example that I used may be a conversation that's more indicative of two allistic person having a conversation. So Anecdotal conversation can sometimes be interpreted as interrupting and rude to people who prefer question-based conversation. But usually, the interjection of these personal experiences is a way for autistic people to express that they're interested in what's being talked about. It's not about making the conversation about them. It's not about cutting the other person off. It's really just a gesture of excitement and engagement with the conversation. When autistic people are having conversations with each other, typically the conversations flow in a way that we just go from one topic to another with both people reciprocating interest in it and sharing their personal experiences within that topic. And so Autistic conversations can a lot time a lot of times be a lot more animated because we are genuinely interested and passionate about what we're talking about. And this difference in communication styles between autistic and holistic people can make effective communication very hard for autistic people. It's hard to have a conversation with someone who is very strictly a question-based conversationalist. And a lot of autistic people already struggle with social skills and language. So this difference in conversation styles on top of all of that can make communicating really difficult and daunting and nerve-wracking for autistic people. Another, I guess, subsect of living with autism that I wanted to talk about that I think is really important is talking about stimulus and how stimulus contributes to shutdowns and meltdowns. So stimulus is any information gathered by your seven primary senses. So sight, touch, hearing, smell, taste, your proprioceptive, which is like the sense of where you are in space and like your movement, and then your vestibular sense, which is your sense of balance. And while all of these are all external stimuli, autistic people are also affected by internal stimuli like anxiety, hunger, and pain. And all of these senses and all of these stimuli can affect an autistic person in the same way. And so too much stimulus can cause a meltdown or a shutdown in someone with autism. And 
a meltdown and a shutdown, I'm going to try and like find a derivative definition for both of them. But I do just want to make this caveat clear, which is that a meltdown and a shutdown can look different across every autistic person. Every autistic person's meltdowns and shutdowns look completely unique. Everyone copes with overstimulation in a different way, and that is very valid. So if my description of a shutdown or a meltdown doesn't necessarily describe your experience with it, then that's okay. I just really wanted to try and give a broad description so that someone that really isn't familiar with it can kind of get an idea. So the simplest definition of a shutdown that I could write is just really straightforward. A shutdown is when someone with autism just shuts off like a computer and they need to reboot away from the excess stimulus. And a really big thing, at least for me, associated with the shutdown is I become nonverbal. As you can obviously tell, usually I am verbal. Usually I have no problem talking. But when I am overstimulated and I am having a shutdown, it's not that I lose the ability to speak, like I didn't just suddenly get brain damage. It's that talking suddenly becomes so exhausting that it it is not worth it to even just speak a word. And so I become completely nonverbal, completely silent. And if I have the ability to, I get away from whatever is causing my overstimulation. If it's a light, I turn it off. If it's a sound, I either turn the sound off or if I can't, then I go as far away from the sound as I can. And I just try to have a quiet, dim environment that I can safely recuperate and stim to get myself back to feeling okay. And so comparing this to a meltdown is, I guess, kind of difficult. Shutdowns and meltdowns can look very similar. And to some autistic people, they might not even have a difference. Some people can just generalize all of their meltdowns and shutdowns and just kind of like one conglomerate occurrence. But to me, my meltdowns and my shutdowns do look different. And so I'm trying to differentiate these two things. But for some people, it might just be they might just have something that maybe more like fits better in the description of a meltdown. So at least the best I could describe it with my experience with meltdowns is a meltdown is when an autistic person goes into a fight or flight response where they will act accordingly as does anyone when their subconscious feels threatened. So for me, a meltdown feels very similar to an anxiety attack. As I said before, I have general anxiety disorder. I suffer from chronic anxiety. And a meltdown for me is very, very, very similar to an anxiety attack. My heart is racing. Like, even if I know in my heart that I am safe and there is no danger around me, my heart can be beating so fast and trying to convince my body that I am in danger. I can die at any moment. And this is a very serious situation. So, my uh my heart rate my heart rate is really high uh i start sweating and my body just really overworks itself and goes into this fight or flight response typically uh my emotions get really strained and i start crying a lot during the meltdown and this is where uh i definitely need to be by myself meltdowns for me are very personal and there are uh I guess just something that I want to go through alone. It's a very solitary thing. And for, I guess, for me to be able to slow my heart rate down and, you know, get into that headspace where I can calm myself down, I need privacy and I need to be alone. Very occasionally when I, when I feel that it's super severe and I feel like I can't calm down by myself and maybe being alone would just cause more paranoia, I do ask people that I trust to be with me during meltdowns, but typically I like to go through them myself. Um, and, you know, this is, again, an, an instance in which I might go away from light. I might go away from sound. I would put noise-canceling headphones on. I'll get fidget toys and I'll stim and I'll just be alone and recuperate until I feel like I have gotten out of it. And there are two things that I want to mention about shutdowns and meltdowns before I move on. One, they can be of any length and any intensity. I can have like a really 
low-key shutdown to where it was maybe just 15 minutes and I just needed to get out of this one situation and then bam, right when I got out of it, I was like, okay, cool. That was the problem. Now that I'm out of it, I'm feeling great. But sometimes I have a meltdown that lasts an entire day and I I cannot get rid of it. I cannot get out of it. It is just exhausting living an entire day in a constant autistic meltdown. And the only thing I can do to get out of it is to just sleep it off and go to bed at night and just hope that I wake up the next morning feeling better. So shutdowns and meltdowns not only are very different in terms of like characteristics and symptoms for each autistic person, but they're also very different in their duration for different autistic people and even within the same person. For me, sometimes a meltdown will last, you know, an hour and I'm good. And sometimes it'll last an entire day. And this is the same with just about every autistic person. And the next thing I wanted to mention before moving on is just to talk about stimulus in general in terms of people who have a uterus. So people who have uteruses that are also autistic are much more prone to shutdowns and meltdowns when they're on their periods. So common side effects of menstruation like cramps, headaches, and bloating are all considered to be negative stimulus. So when people are on their period, they're experiencing way more negative stimulus in that, you know, week or period of days that that they're on their period. So they're much more likely to overstimulate. When I'm on my period, I am I always feel like I am on the brink of a meltdown. I make sure when I am on my period to bring much more fidget toys for me. I bring water to make sure that nothing, I, I try to minimize any other stimulus because I know that the ones already going on in my body are enough to overwhelm me. So especially when I'm on my period, I make sure to have plenty of snacks so that I never feel hungry. I make sure to have water on me on all times that I'm never thirsty. I usually try to stay in quiet, dimly lit environments because being on my period is enough to just cause a shutdown or a meltdown on its own. And this is something I could talk about for hours. It is something that I am very passionate about. And it's something that really makes me angry when people try to minimize something like this. So if you would like to hear more about the experience of autism for people who have uteruses, I will probably do an episode on it in the future and really try and get in depth into some of these issues. So definitely stay tuned for that in a future episode. So I think this is the last thing. No, it's the second to last thing. So the second to last thing that I want to touch on in my living with autism section is how autistic people cope with excess stimulus, how autistic people act and react when they recognize that there is too much going on either outside of them, you know, externally or inside of them. And I've already touched on this slightly in this episode, but I do just want to make sure and explain it uh, to where it can be understood and to where, you know, I spent enough time talking about it. So I to just to reiterate and to just keep in mind, for autistic people, too much stimulus is painful and it can be drastically painful, like physically painful. And to combat all of this stimulus, an autistic person needs to do one of two things, and they may do both, they may do just one, and sometimes they may need help doing them. One of the things that autistic, do, autistic people do to try and cope with excess stimulus is to just remove the negative stimulus. If it's too bright and they have the capability of either turning the light off or closing some blinds or, you know, using a dimmer, or turning the main light off and using just little lamps instead. That is definitely something that autistic people will do in a reaction to excess stimulus. And if they don't have control over the lighting or how bright the sun is, then they will just go somewhere darker or somewhere quieter if the problematic stimulus is sound. Another thing that autistic people will do is stim. And stimming is good stimulus. Stimming is 
done in an effort to replace all of the negative stimulus going on around you with positive stimulus that you can control and it makes you feel good. And it it's, can be also just done expressively. Examples of stimming are repeating the same sound, touching a nicely textured object, flapping your hands, rocking. Every autistic person has their own preferred stimming behaviors. For me, one of the stims I love to do, which is awful, is pick at the nail or pick at the skin around my nails. Like for even though it's kind of painful for some reason, it's like really gratifying to me to pick at the skin around my nails, which is probably a terrible habit and I need to learn a good replacement behavior and a you know a good replacement stimming behavior to avoid doing that because my cuticles always look really bad but yeah if you see me you know I guess in the wild just going ham on the skin on my nails it is because I'm stimming and it's not because I'm trying to hurt myself it is done uncontrollably stimming can be done on purpose and I may you know put active thought into stimming, but a lot of times autistic people stim without even thinking about it. And it's something that it's just a natural reaction to try and combat all of the negative stimulus going on around them. And as I've kind of mentioned already, sometimes when an autistic person who is normally verbal has too much negative stimulus, they may become nonverbal or in other words, may not be able to talk or use their words. And this nonverbal state occurs when the mind and body have to divert resources to dealing with other tasks. And an autistic person may not normally be nonverbal, but become so during a meltdown or a shutdown or when overwhelmed. And again, this is something that I relate with and, and I and I definitely do. So it is important to remember that Uh, If you know someone who is autistic and you see that, you know, they are overstimulated and there is too much stimulus going on, maybe not the best thing to do is try and rope them into a conversation and force them to talk. Even if some autistic people don't have an issue with that and are okay with that, I would say that by and large, I think just stay on the safe side. And if you see someone who is obviously overstimulated and has autism, I would maybe talk to them and ask if they need help, but definitely not try and rope them into a long conversation. Okay, so the last thing that I want to talk about in this section is, I guess, just the... I really wanted to try and explain and visualize how autistic people go throughout their day and, you know, expend themselves throughout the day. And I found this thing online. I'm not sure if it's like a really credited theory, but for me, at least theoretically, I think it really does a good job of trying to, I guess, uh, like make an analogy to how autistic people have to use their their like resources. And this theory is called the spoon theory. So in this spoon theory, it explains that an autistic person has a certain amount of quote-unquote spoons for each day. And these spoons are the mental, emotional, and physical resources that you can use to do any certain task. And some days, autistic people may wake up and have more spoons. And other days, autistic people may wake up and have little to no spoons. The the quantity of spoons that an autistic person has on any given day varies. And anything you do, like getting up out of bed, getting dressed, brushing your teeth, showering, eating, going to work, going to class, all of those things cost a certain amount of spoons. And so with a limited resource of spoons available every day, Any autistic person may only be able to accomplish a few tasks, and that's perfectly okay. Sometimes a task can cost a lot of spoons. Like, sometimes going to work can be an extremely taxing and overwhelming thing to do, and that can cost a lot of spoons. And sometimes that same task, going to work, may cost 
less spoons than other times. Maybe it was a really slow day at work and it was quiet and it was the weather was nice. And so that wasn't as taxing as it normally is. And another thing to note is that using too many spoons or doing too much, you know, pulling too much from your resources on any given day can leave someone short on spoons the following day. So if I had a really jam-packed day and I didn't have the ability to get out of the the happenings of that day and I just had to power through it and even though, you know, I knew I was out of resources, I was overstimulated, I was exhausted and I just had to keep pushing through to get everything done, I may wake up the next day feeling completely spent that I have no energy, no capability of getting anything done. And it's because I overexerted my resources of like my spoons the day before. And they, 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 in a sense, roll over. And so I tapped into my source of spoons for the next day and rendered myself completely out of resources for that day. And I just found this analogy really useful and I think it can be a really good tool for the neurodivergent and disability communities to attempt to explain what it's like to live each day. Okay, well, thanks for listening and hopefully learning. If you would like me to expand on anything mentioned in this episode, please email me at autismactuallyspeakspodcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to shoot me an email with any autism-related questions, topics, stories, or recommendations for a chance for your email to be featured in a future episode. And to stay up to date on episode releases and to see unique cover art for each episode, follow the podcast on Instagram at Autism Actually Speaks Podcast. Okay, that's it. Bye, y'all.